Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. So I want to welcome to the stage a good friend, a mentor, someone who's been in my life and we've Pretty much try to figure it out this week from the beginning. <laughs> and, and, um, and can we welcome Dave Beering as he comes and shares with us this morning? Thank you, sir. Good morning. Morning. Are we good this morning? Yes. Staying out of trouble or getting in some? A little bit of both, maybe. Kind of keeping an eye on Deke over here to make sure he doesn't get in too much trouble. So it's a privilege to be with you, and I sincerely mean that. I don't mean that just to be nicey-nice to open up a session with, but it's, it's been a joy to be with you. I had the privilege of being with some of the leaders on Friday night and then with a good crew of people yesterday, and then we um, spent some time last night with some old friends that we've walked in by old. I don't mean age. I mean long-time friends. <laughs> and, um, and so we had a really good, good time last night. And I, I want to share with you today... Um, and I know that those of you that are here that are going through discipleship journey, either this past week or this coming week, is actually what I want to share on. But I like uh, when, when Ryan told me where you guys were in this and kind of talking about spiritual warfare. It's something that I really like when I'm in person to be able to share and to help kind of drive home some of the pieces of this. But, but let me begin by praying. And uh, would you just stand with me so you can stand one last time? before we take the next three hours to sit. Um, (laughs) Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you've given us your word and it's life to us. It's also a compass to us. It's something that we can have guide us in the midst of the challenges of the days that we're living in. Thank you, Lord, that um, at the time of the writing, even of the New Testament, they were going through even more stuff than we are now. And I thank you that it makes your word from those days, the living word still for us today. And we're grateful for that. So Lord, would you take this time and would you make an impact in my heart, in our hearts, in Jesus name, amen, amen. So a number of years ago, I, uh, when my son was in high school, uh, a friend of mine came and said, hey, would you help us with something? And I said, sure, like, what can I do? And he said, would you help be one of our football coaches? That didn't take too long to discern the will of God on that. And I said, I would love to do that. Well, my son was playing, and Ryan at the time was about 6'3", 240 pounds. Now he's 6'4", and about 215 to 220. And we were pioneering this football program for a private school. And during that time, we had to learn lots of things as coaches. I had played, like some of you had played over the years, but when you go into coaching, it's a little different deal, right? There's passing on knowledge and wisdom you experience, but there's other things like um, drills and, and techniques. And so at the time, the NFL was doing um, coaching clinics for high school coaches in the NFL cities where there was an NFL team, where our team in Tennessee is the Tennessee Titans. And so Jeff Fisher was the coach of the team at the time. And so they opened up this day long event where all these high school coaches, there's like, I don't know, 150 of us there. And 
Coach Fisher addresses us as a head coach, and then you have the offensive coordinator, you know, and this is shortly after they've been in the Super Bowl. He's addressing us in the defensive coordinator. Well, because the guy that was our head coach of our football team, he had played quarterback. That was my old position. He chose to be the offensive coordinator, and so I got to be the defensive coordinator. And I thought, okay, as an old quarterback, I kind of have a little heads up on how defenses might go, but like I'm starting from scratch here in other areas. And so after we met with all the coaches, what they did is they said, okay, so the next two hours, you'll go out on our practice field and the uh, specialty coaches, the running backs coach, the quarterbacks coach, the defensive line coach, the linebackers, the cornerback, they're going to be spread out and you go for an hour and be with one of those. So I went with the defensive line coach and then I went with the linebackers coach because I'm now coaching defense. Well, one of the things that we learned during this time was this phrase, it's learning how to play fast. Learning how to play fast. You guys, if if you want, you can throw the, there's a PowerPoint I've got up and if you guys want to see that, but it's playing fast. And so what that means in football language is you're not thinking about it. You just do it. Now, some of you play fast in the kitchen. It's like, you're not paying attention to that little card. You just, I think we need a little of this and how about a little of that? And you're playing fast in the kitchen. Like, I'm glad that the people playing guitars up here are playing fast. They've got it down. It's just so they're not going like D, <laughs> G. They're not doing that. Aren't you glad? They, they play fast because it's become a part of them. And so they begin to teach us about this whole dynamic of helping your kids play fast where they're not thinking about it because they practiced it so much, it's gotten in them. Well, one of the things that I was determined to do is make our team the best tackling team in the league. So I knew we were going to have to rehearse this thing. So they showed us a technique of tackling. That's called hit, wrap, and drive. It's been modified a bit these days because of concussions. But the idea behind it, (laughs) the idea behind it was this. And the principles are still the same, but it's like, so what I would do is I'd line like our tall kids up across from each other. So facing each other, you know, maybe from here to the stage apart. And, and I would say, okay, hit. There's a method called hit, wrap, and drive. So hit. So what you'd have to do is put your face, your face mask, right in here, about where the numbers were. And then it was wrap, and you'd wrap around and lock your hands, or, you know, on your wrist like this. And then the last one was you'd use your back leg to drive. So it's like you would stop them in their tracks. And of course, if you're chasing this way, it was a learning how to apply hit, wrap, and drive. So all the time, you know, it's like, okay, guys, hit. And, you know, the kids on this side would go, wrap, drive. And they would stand them up a little bit, you know, and then back and forth. You know, well, they got tired of this after about three weeks of every practice. And I was like, coach, we know. I said, no, you don't. You're getting there. But in the game, I don't want you to think hit, wrap, drive. I want you to explode on people. I want you to tackle them. I don't want them to gain another yard. So it became fun for me during games because after, you know, as I'm seeing a running back for the other team coming here and I'm watching my linebacker and I'm just stepping back a little bit because I know it's all going to happen right here. But to watch him execute hit, wrap, and drive and then to get, have him get up and go like this at points, it's like, I'm, way to go. You're doing it. Well, we ended up winning the championship. And part of it was because we had a team that knew how to tackle and they were playing fast. Well, several years ago in our church family, I was noticing that a lot of people were walking through stuff. And I begin to think about 
like, like when I'm walking through stuff, I look at just the real life that's going on. I also look at God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Is there anything in my life you're trying to weed out or add to me? But I also kind of my third approach is where is the enemy in this? So like if I'm on the way here this morning with Bill Wade and who who's kindly picked me up and drove me over here and we get a flat tire while Bill or I are trying to fix the tire or calling AAA to fix the tire, I'm also just saying, okay, that's in process. That's good. We've got to get there. But I'm also just resisting the enemy in Jesus' name and saying, you're not going to use this to screw me up today, to get me frustrated today. Am I saying the enemy was the one that did the flat tire? I'm not saying that because I don't know that. I'm not smart enough to know that. All I know is he wants to use it to get me off my game. Okay? And one of the things that we have to realize in life is that the enemy is real. And I started seeing him, if I could put it this way, dragging people under the bus for too long. And people were asking the right questions. Okay, what is the circumstances here going on that we maybe need to adjust? And they were asking the right questions like, Jesus, is there anything you're trying to do in me or grow me or stretch me or change in me? But they were leaving out the third one. Where is the enemy in this? And I was seeing friends being dragged under the bus where all they really needed to do was stand up and say, in the name of Jesus, I cut that off no more. And and so I sat with our staff and I I shared this with them. And And so here's what I began to do. I thought, how do I take the coaching thing I learned in football of playing fast? How do I help people do warfare playing fast? And that's what I want to share with you today. Because I think sometimes, you know, it, it, we get in extremes in warfare, right? There's either, there's the, the old Keith Green song, which was from way back when, but it's a song called Nobody Believes in Me Anymore. Go check that one out because he sings it as if he's the devil. And the greatest thing he can do is to get us to believe that he's not real. Nobody believes in me anymore. That's a big, the enemy goes, check, got that one. So if you're sitting in this room thinking, yeah, there's no devil. Can I just tell you, read your Bible? Can I just tell you, maybe go out to the mission field and all of a sudden you realize when you're face to face with something that it's real. It's real. So you got this extreme and then you got this other extreme over here where when the file cabinet drawer doesn't open, you're sure it's a demon holding it shut. Where it's like, no, just move the paper for Pete's sake. You don't have to rebuke the file drawer. All right. So we have we have these extremes where either he's no whatever, and you got this over here where the devil's behind everything. And there's a biblical balance to warfare. Okay, and that's where we want to be. So I begin to think about how do I help people play fast, where you can begin to recognize, so you don't get dragged under the bus. You guys, I have friends, you have friends, this may be you this morning, where you, you can be dragged under the bus forever. Like, like, for example, people who are stuck under the, the banner of rejection. And when someone just walks by you and they don't pause to say, hey, how you doing? You're sure. And the enemy's going, yeah, see, they just rejected you. When maybe they had to get out there because there was a water faucet leaking and they wanted to make sure. So they just say, hey, on the way out the door. But we take it personally, and the enemy whispers, yeah, see, you weren't valuable enough for them to stop and say hi to. And we live under rejection or fear or anger or pride or whatever it is when simply going before the Lord in repentance and saying, Jesus, I repent for this, and I receive your forgiveness, and in the name of Jesus, I cut off fear from my life. 
Some of us wrestle with generational fear. Like if you think about your mom or your dad or your grandparents, or they, and you realize, wow, that has been coming down family line forever. Where I live in the South, sometimes you see great granddaddy, granddaddy, dad, son, and grandson, all alcoholics. And you go like, what is that about? It's like a, a vein, a spiritual stronghold vein. And just because they were stuck in it doesn't mean you have to be. And matter of fact, Jesus is waiting for us as families to stand up and say, no more in the name of Jesus. Moving forward, this family line will not be bound by fear or rejection or whatever the case may be. See, that's where we can just get dragged under the bus and, well, woe is me and I can never know. That's not true. As a follower of Jesus, the spirit of the living God lives in you. And, and in humility and in godly character and standing on who Jesus is and what his word says, we can break through these things. So let me show you a couple of scriptures here. Ephesians 6, 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. And literally in the Greek, it means to be watchful, attentive, and ready with all perseverance. This isn't like always kind of want, always the devil behind. It's not like that. It's just being aware. It's getting on your radar that it's one of the things you might need to factor in. First Peter 5, be sober-minded. It means calm, collected in spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Look at that. The Bible says the enemy is seeking to devour you. And he knows. Here's the deal. He knows he can do nothing about your salvation. You're going to heaven. But he is doggone determined to make sure you don't fulfill your God-given destiny. And he certainly doesn't want you impacting other people that you live life with. So he'll do everything he can to get you in another place where you don't need to be. Here's some of Satan's names and titles. You're going to see this in your ADJ manual as well. But let me just show you things that are talked about uh, because I want you to realize that some of the names that are given to him reveal some of his strategies and what he does. For example, Satan means adversary. He's going to be somebody that will stand against you. And he does even more so when you give your life to Jesus because he knows, uh-oh, now the spirit of God lives in them. They can do serious damage. All right. The devil means accuser. If you ever hear chirping in you, you'll never be enough. Yes, they love you, but not you. Oh, there's no way you'll ever fulfill the purpose for which you were born. That's accusing. The enemy who opposes us, the God of this world, where it says in 2 Corinthians, blinds the eyes blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they can't see the prince of the power of the air the roaring lion you're trying to bring intimidation the serpent who's the sneaky poisonous one if you look here some of the names jesus how jesus called him out he said he's a liar so like there's nothing true in him he's a murderer like he is out to steal kill destroy he's a thief he's a tempter like these are some of the things that we learn about his strategies. And see, always remember this. The devil does not know your thoughts. That's always was comforting to me. Jesus is the only, God's the only one that knows our thoughts. But he's been around humankind enough that he knows our weaknesses. He's seen enough of what you do and your vulnerabilities are that he knows where to go after you. 
Because if he can get you tripped up, he, he feels like he wins. Because you cannot spread the love, the power, the grace of Jesus to other people. So as I'm thinking about all this stuff, and I'm thinking, how do I help our team, my staff, our church team, how, how do we play fast in spiritual warfare? So what I did is I kind of looked at the different ways that the enemy attacks. And I'm going to tell you, this is like 90, 95% of the ways. Are there other ways? Of course there are. But these are the five primary ways that the enemy attacks. And I want you to think about as we go through these, because I'm going to have you rehearse them with me. I just call them the five D's so they're easy to remember. All right. But I want you to think almost like a Marvel, you know, comic character, superhero, where you have this, these five things, they, they reside right here. And when you turn, they, it's so soft. But whenever you need them, you can go like this, and they're here. And you now have a grid that whatever you're looking at, those five things are there so that you can go, okay, it's this and this. Now I know what to do. Okay? So let me, let me tell you about the first one. The first one is distort. Say distort with me. Distort. distort. All right? This is where we meet the enemy in the Bible. In Genesis 3.1, in the garden, he says, did God really say? Did God really say? Like one of the end of things the enemy wants to do is distort in your mind what God is really like. And some of you today are going, man, I struggle with that. Maybe how you were raised or maybe a traumatic thing that happened. And, and see, everything that happens like that to us, the enemy jumps on and goes, see, this is what God's like. See, he's, he's not there for you. Oh, you didn't feel his love. And you start believing that to be true. You see, the image of God that you carry around in your heart and mind affects the way you live your daily life. Some spiritual fathers who've gone on before us remind us that, so I really want you to hear this. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Because if you don't believe he loves you and cares for you, that he's the one that can strike the enemy down, that in the midst of hopelessness, you can have hope. It, it, like we might as well pack it all in. So what the enemy tries to do since you were a little child is to try to strategize how to distort what God is really like so that you don't want to follow him. That you see him in a muted way. You see him in this weird, strange, disfigured way. And I want you to be honest with yourself this morning and go, how do you view God? Like with what happened in this last seven days of your life, how have you viewed God through that? He desperately wants us to be in the scriptures to see what he's like. Pastor Ryan provides you with a, a tool. If you, if you don't have this and you want to use it, we did a number of years ago, 366 two-minute Daily video devotionals on the character of God. So just two minutes a day. But if you go through it in a year, you'll hit 101 attributes of God's character from Scripture, three to four days each, to renew your mind about what God is really like. I, I, this is just me, but I think sometimes God is frustrated with how misrepresented he is. Amen. And we got to get back to the word and say, what are you really like? Like when it says he is just and kind in all his ways and doings, and we live in a world that doesn't have a lot of justice and is often not kind to us, we got to go back and say, okay, this is who you are. So God, how do you want me to 
relate to that and let you pour that through me. But where is God distorted? And I want you to know sometimes the enemy works overtime on this. And he'll also distort things in our lives. Have you ever been in this situation where in reality it was a about this big, but the enemy made it look like a mountain to you. He distorts. Okay. So say that one with me. What is it? Okay. So distorts the first one. The second one is, well, let me, let me talk about this. What's your counter punch. So if this is where the enemy comes, what's the counter punch? The counter punch is you getting to know the character of God in the scriptures and through life experiences. I was sharing with someone the other day, that uh, early on in our marriage and in, in our missions life, we had about $350 a month of support. And Cheryl one day wanted to go up to the captain's porthole, which was the name of the little store on the youth of the mission base where you could get chips and Coke and candy bars. And when I said, I just kind of want to go get a Coke. And, and I knew we didn't have much. So I said, honey, why don't you go get that, the coins we have? And I pulled out an ice cube tray. We said, let's just put 10 cents in each one to see how much we had. And it was like, the good news is we got enough for a Coke tonight. Go. Well, there are times when we might be challenged in that area where Cheryl and I will rehearse stories like that in our life to say, this is how God came through. And we're pulling the character of God into real life with us of where God was faithful, where he provided, where he rescued us, where he redeemed us. And when you sit and do that and you rehearse what God did last time I was in this situation, it's like the, the river begins to rise inside of you. Faith and trust and courage and hope. Do you do that? Or when you get hit with a distortion of God's character or life, do you just go down? You're on the ground. He's knocking you out. Or do you rise up and say, this is not who God is. He's this way. And, and like when you're in here and your team is leading you in worship, like this morning, it's find those attributes of God's character in those songs because it might meet right where you're at. You can say, no, his goodness is running after me on a crap week. And to sing that over yourself. No, 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 no. His goodness, because it's true. His goodness, God is always looking to be good to us. And the enemy's distortion is, no, 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 you kind of have to beg and plead and live the best Christian life ever to get a little bit of something out of God. That is not who he is. But that's where you have to, can I say it this way, get a little brave heart in you. It doesn't mean you have to paint your face and say, freedom. It doesn't mean that. But you got to learn inside to rise up a little bit and go, no, this isn't true. And let the warrior part of you rise up in you. Okay, what's the first one? Okay, the second one is distract. Say that one. Okay, now let's do them together. The first one is distort, distract. So one of the other strategies the enemy does is he tries to distract us. He tries to get our eyes on things where they don't need to be. And you'll see up here, I put a few things like that are fruit of this. One is loss of focus. Like, you know, you're supposed to be focusing on this, getting my marriage right. But all of a sudden it's, it's like, you know, do you remember that movie up with a dog squirrels? And the enemy does that. He has this ability with shiny things to kind of get us 
looking over here when we should be here. And so you're dealing with things like loss of focus, diversion, commotion in life. And he tries to get us to be focusing on things where we don't need to be focusing. Okay? I I call this a spiritual swirl at times. Whenever I enter into a situation, like, and you've maybe experienced this in life, to to just show you kind of how the spiritual comes into a situation where you walk into something, a meeting, a relationship, uh, uh, something on the job, whatever, and it's, it's as clear as a bell going into the meeting, and you come out more confused than ever. Oftentimes, I I have learned to recognize the enemy comes in and causes a spiritual swirl where you don't know which way is up. You don't know which way is in and which way is out. It's just there's a spiritual swirl, and the enemy has you in this like tornadic spiritual experience, and you're like, what is the deal? And you can't see clearly. This is part of distracting. And some of you might be in that very moment right now. And you know, I can't see Jesus in the midst of this. The enemy will do everything he can to try to distract. We see Jesus with Mary and Martha. And, you know, sometimes people come down heavy that Jesus rebuked. But I don't think he rebuked her. I think he was just saying, hey, like, I know you're serving. But he knew that he wasn't going to be around much longer. He said, just come and hang with me. Like Mary's decided to do that. Just come and do that with me. And we can be so, like, one of the things I have to guard in my life is I can be so, become so distracted with ministry things that I for, can forget my intimate friendship with Jesus. So, so let me just ask you this. How's your intimate friendship with Jesus? Is more of my mind power thinking going towards ministry and what I'm doing, or is it getting to know him more? Like, Where is that? Because see, the enemy will use even good things to distract us. And you know good things can be the greatest hindrance to the greatest things. So where are you? Like, where have you allowed the enemy to not only distort, but to distract you? Like for some of you, maybe the Lord has called you to do X, Y, or Z. And you're sitting here this morning. And even as I'm saying this, the Holy Spirit's kind of doing the gentle elbow in the ribs going, Remember, I asked you to do this. And somehow you got over over here. The good news, if that's the case, just before you leave or before you go to bed tonight, Jesus, I heard you today. And I repent for that. And I will begin to take steps this week to get more in alignment with what it is you've asked me to do. Like this could be about our marriages. This could be about jobs. This could be about calling and career. It could be about something maybe he's asked you to do with a relationship of mending it, and we just have put it off. See, one of the things that I grew up hearing was this, delayed obedience is disobedience. Okay, Delayed obedience is disobedience. It's that place of walking where Jesus asks us to walk. Distort, distract. How has the enemy, and maybe sometimes if you're single, you got to be aware that the opposite sex is one of those big, shiny, distracting things the enemy brings out to get your eyes where they don't need to be or to compromise within your own soul about that. Where is the enemy trying to distract in your life? What's the counterpunch of this? I would submit to you a couple of things. One is 
consistently walking in obedience to Jesus. So instead of getting distracted, like, okay, Jesus, what is it you've asked me to do? And coming back in alignment to that from what you know from the word and what the Holy Spirit has shown you as you've been seeking him. Okay, you've asked me to do this. Why in the world am I spending so much time over here doing this? Because it's distracting me from what you asked me to Because see, if the enemy can get you off your obedience game, he wins. Okay? The second thing is when distraction arises, go back and obey the last thing the Lord showed you to do. So it's kind of like a spiritual chiropractic adjustment. If today you're sitting here, oh, geez, Dave, you're speaking to me on this. Go back and say, what is the last thing I know Jesus asked me to do? And go do that. And it's kind of like a spiritual adjustment. So ask him that. God, what is the last thing you asked me to do? And just go do that. And that begins to, to align you. Okay, so the first one is what? The second is? First one is? Second? Second is? First is? Okay, just wanted to make sure you're with me. All right. What's the third one? The third one is discouraged. So take same in order. The first one is? Distort? Distract, discourage. One of the things the enemy will try to do is discourage us. We've all experienced this. Sometimes it comes down on us like a wet blanket that you just can't get off. And I want you to think of this word discourage, meaning this, to remove courage. It's to remove courage for you to step up and step into what God has asked you to do. And the enemy... You know, he brings things like accusation, failure, hopelessness. His aim is just to destroy. There's all kinds of ways because he, he knows because of humankind, he knows how to bring discouragement. He aims to remove courage to obey Jesus. Uh, you know, it's just too hard. I just can't do this. Or he, he plays on your fears. No, I just... Because what if I fail or what if, you know, I'm rejected and fear of rejection and, and, and he plays on all this stuff. This is why when you hear pastors and leaders in your life say, keep moving towards wholeness, because whatever areas of our lives are unwhole, which we all are on that journey, right? That's where he will play off of you. That's why you want to keep saying, yes, Jesus, I got this sin area. I got this struggle area. I got, I'm leaning in on this thing. Would you heal me? Would you grow me? Whatever the case may be. But see, he will look to discourage you. And, and I don't know if you thought about this, but this story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, you might remember the story. In the chapter before, he's calling down fire from heaven. Like, do you remember this story? Like, it's the prophets of Baal, and he goes and gets water to throw on things so that you think it's going to be hard for God to burn it up. And then fire, come, like fire comes down from heaven, Pete's sake, and just, well, the next chapter, Elijah's in a cave basically saying, God, just take me out. Do you realize that some of your greatest vulnerability to discouragement is after a big spiritual victory? And we have to be aware of that. That it's just, just get you off by yourself. And we see God coming and ministering to him. And, but, but you guys, discouragement is it's happening a lot in the world around us. But as followers of Jesus, can I just say this to you? We all go through hard stuff right now. Like, just to be honest, one of the hard things in, in our life right now, we love and we're being dignified and all that. But like, I got 
two 90-year-olds in my life, my mom and dad, who both have Alzheimer's and they have opposites and they can't live together. And my brother and his wife and Cheryl and I are trying to tend them. And then on top of this, we had in our church, it's, I don't serve as a pastor there, but I, I help and I've helped as an elder there. We had a huge church split about two years ago that was just uncalled for, not needed. And, and in the midst of all this, the enemy wants to discourage because sometimes it feels like you're giving out so much. So there's not only the highs, but there's moments of vulnerability. But that's where you have to be honest with yourself of what's going on there. Okay, what's the counterpunch to discouragement? First is you have to see the big picture. Like, can I just tell you, like in Second Kings, there's the story where the servant comes out and says, man, there's all kinds of horses and people out here against us. And Elisha says, Jesus, your father opened his eyes and, and all of a sudden he sees, you know, heavenly chariots of fire way more than them. And sometimes you and I need to step back. My favorite portion is Revelation 4 and 5, where I see, you know, the angels in heaven worshiping Jesus. And I have to go there sometimes and just kind of look at that and remind myself, okay, this is what's going on in heaven right now. This is what will go on in heaven when we're there. And that all of a sudden recalibrates me to everything. Okay. So we need to do that. There's worship warfare. I, I have my favorite worship warfare songs on a playlist that if I just need to go put my headsets on and kind of, it's not pump myself up. It's not that. It's let truth invade me in the deepest parts again. And then there's prayer warfare, which is just, again, standing against. In the name of Jesus, I am not going to let fear hinder me from stepping into what God's asked me to do. All right. Again, you guys, there's a bit of a, in the body of Christ, we don't have a spiritual aggressiveness. And I don't mean in front of people. This is like prayer in your prayer closet kind of stuff. Okay. And sometimes if you see me, if you would see me in my little study, sometimes it's like that because I don't understand something. And you'll hear me say, Jesus, I do not understand this, but I trust you. And it comes out just like that because it's the only way that I know how to get it out. And that's how I have to live sometimes. I just have to air it out and share my heart. And the Lord isn't surprised with any of that. But where it changes when I say, but I still trust you with all my heart. Proverbs 3 does not say trust the Lord with half your heart. It says trust the Lord with all your heart. And then next, what does it say? Do not lean on your own understanding of trying to figure it out. And that's where when I have a 15-year-old die in our congregation and, and the mom is destroyed, like, how do you... And that's where I just have to say, I don't understand Jesus. I don't get it. I'm glad I'm not you. I'm glad you do get it. But I, I trust you. Because not everything makes sense, but that doesn't change the character of God. You guys, here's the habit we have. We tend to look at what's going on in the world, and then we make judgments about God. Followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, never live that way. They always start with the character of God and then make make judgments on what's going on based on who God is. So if you're doing this and you didn't know it, let that today be your revelation point of, oh my gosh, God, from this day forward, I'm switching that and I'm going to stand with you and your character in your word, regardless of my circumstances. And it's okay to say, I don't get it. What's the first one? Okay, here's the fourth one. Deceive. This one isn't a surprising one to you. I'm sure you know the enemy tries to 
deceive us. So here's how I like to define this. Deception is a blend of falsehoods mixed with a portion of truth aimed at our vulnerabilities. So he, he's going, he, he's aware of your vulnerabilities. So he's going to try to deceive you to get you to believe something that's not true about God, about other people, about your circumstances. And he's going to try to deceive you, to get you away from what's true. But he'll often manipulate it by going after your vulnerabilities. Blend the falsehoods with a little bit of truth to make it believable. And then we bite on it. People don't like me anymore. Nobody at that church loves me. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just did you go ask him? And the enemy starts sowing deception into our lives. This is how Jesus was attacked. When you look at the spiritual warfare of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, and the enemy twists scripture. Like, you guys, you have to understand that the enemy knows scripture really well. He doesn't live by it, so he's never transformed. But he'll use it to manipulate. I mean, this is how we have cults in the world. Is he's taken truths and mixed falsehoods in it and then aimed it at vulnerabilities and people then have believed it and they live that stuff. Deception. One of the questions when I, we do something every year called a leadership journey and I take a dozen to 18 leaders from around the country and from January to June, we walk through some things together. And at our very first retreat, after we welcome people and glad you're here and blah, 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 this is how I started. I asked this question. If you were the devil, how would you take you out? Guys, we got to answer this question. Otherwise, you never know where you're vulnerable. If you were the devil and you were strategizing against you, how would you take you out? Most of us, if we're honest, within 30 seconds to 60 seconds, you can answer that question. Is it rejection? Is it fear? Is it the opposite sex? Is it money? What is it? And that's where you begin to say, Jesus, you need to begin to build me strong in these areas of my life. Heal me, mend me, build me up. Because the enemy will aim after your vulnerabilities. If you were the devil, how would you take you out? You gotta, you gotta be honest with yourself. Otherwise, you will never know how... You know, when that attack comes, how to fend that thing off. Right? You'll just never know. You just, and you'll get bowled over. Okay? So what's the counterpunch? Two things here. First one is a commitment to walk in truth. At, from God's word. What does the Bible say here about this? And you having an unwavering commitment, even if it goes against everything you've ever learned, but you're saying, Jesus, I want to walk in your ways in this. You walk in truth. So there's this commitment to walk in truth. And the second thing is relational accountability. Like, like you guys, Jesus never intended us to do this alone. But as Americans, where we have the declaration of independence, we value our independence. But the only way I know how to do this is you've got to walk with people. Because I can't see myself clearly. I got to have other people to say, starting with my wife, hey, hon, did you know you're doing this? No. And friends, I have three buddies that since, and, and guys in particular, ladies, you tend to do this better than us as men. But I have three guys in my life, Jim, Dan, and Bruce, 
Since 2006, every four to six weeks, we have breakfast together. And the first half hour is just eating and smack talk and, you know, chuckling with each other. And But then one of us will say, so Jimmy, how you doing? And over the next hour, when Jimmy's done, they say, Brucey, how you doing? And, and we share deeply. We've carried the hardest things of each other's lives since 2006. When my daughter walked through a divorce, that wasn't on my bucket list, guys. And I had to say, guys, this is hurting me. This is hurting my family. I don't like what's happening with my daughter in this. And, and when one went bankrupt and another lost their business, I mean, it was we, we've been there for each other. And men, you have to have these kinds of relationships. They're also the relationships I can share my greatest triumphs with because they know we're not bragging, but you want to share, guess what Jesus did in my life? or through my life, and we high-five and champion each other. So we share our greatest challenges, but also our greatest victories. We cheer each other on, and we challenge each other. you got to have relational accountability. And there's several layers of that in my life. You can't make it on your own, especially when it comes to walking in deception. Okay, so review the four with me. We'll hit the last one. Distort. Distract, discourage, deceive. Okay, and the last one is divide. Divide. The enemy is a master divider. I mean, we've known this, right? From church life to family life to friendships. Remember, you guys, the way the Bible says the world will know. Now, again, just catch this. The Bible says the way the world will know that God has sent his son is the awesome worship services we have no how about the best buildings that we have no says the way the world will know that god has sent his son is the way the body of christ relates to one another or as the bible says love one another like the world's supposed to go i want to get me some of that as we say in the south i want some of that so if the enemy can keep churches divided like oh yeah that church over there man they're out to lunch man and we start doing that, like you have to realize we're on the same team. So when the church across the street is having revival meetings every night, you don't have to get insecure and go, well, they, they, don't, have, um, they, they don't have missions like we do. Just cheer them on, say, do you need our parking lot? Because on the scoreboard of heaven, points they're putting on the scoreboard is our team. But our own little insecurities and pride start comparing. Don't give the enemy room for that. <clears throat> How does the enemy divide? Let me give you these three things. And again, it's not the be all or end all, right? Separating relationships. How about this one? Some of you <clears throat> get stuck in this operating independently. You don't reference other people. I'm just going to do what I want to do. and Nobody can tell me what to do. Well, that's not the spirit of Jesus, friends. Satan cannot defeat a united church. <clears throat> that's something you and I have to understand. And he knows that. And because he knows that, that's why he works so hard to get after you and me. Because he can defeat a united church or a divided church. Check it out. What's the counterpunch? These are pretty easy. Ephesians 4 says, we're to maintain the unity of the spirit. 
in the bond of peace. Let me ask you a question. Would people who know you say you're a maintainer of unity? Would they say that you're somebody that often throws questions and disparage people and leaders? That's not, that's not being a unity builder. Unity, by the way, doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. I think I have the most beautiful wife in the world. Randy Young over there thinks his wife is the babe of all babes. <laughs> we don't have to agree on who we think is the most beautiful. We have to agree on these big things in life and realize, thank you, Jesus, that you gave us both godly, wonderful, beautiful women. But we move forward. Okay? <clears throat> so don't get caught in the weeds on that, all right? And then secondly, we're to be agents of reconciliation, where you are actually somebody that helps people be reconciled. You help people be reconciled to God. This is actually in 2 Corinthians 5. It says we have been given, like if you go, what is my ministry? Well, one of them is the Bible says you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Like that's not something you even need to pray about. All you got to pray about that is, okay, God, to whom? But that's actually part of who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be people that bring people together and ultimately reunite God with people. Okay, so let's review these. What's the first one? Store. The stored. Now that was kind of weak. Let's start over. First one is what? Distort, distract, discourage, deceive, divide. I want you to get those here. So that when you're walking through something, you can bring it here quickly and go, okay, I know what this is. This is a distortion and it's division. Because guess what? Then you know what to do with it. And you won't be dragged under the bus for days, weeks, months, and years. Can you guys stand with me? Let's just pray. I hope, I hope you will continue to rehearse these things. I hope it's something that you will just kind of make a part of your life. So this week, when you bump into something, you can go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and you start, because when you have this here, it becomes quicker. Like, like just in your car, after you left the situation that was discouraging, do you just, and the enemy then throws the blanket and he takes advantage of that circumstance? Or do you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not receiving discouragement right now. I'm going to ask Jesus to come into the situation. You start praying over it. And all of a sudden stuff happens in you. Because he still wants to display grace, joy, and peace through your life in the midst of crap. He still wants to display that to the world around you. Because again, this morning I woke up and I'm destined for hell because of the way I've lived my life. But because of what Jesus did for me, I don't have to worry about that today. I don't even have to think about that today. Like, is that not enough to make my day? Right? So Jesus, we come before you and we would say, would you help us to learn how to war? To not just be passive and let the enemy run over us, but to recognize, yeah, when it's just a life circumstance, to recognize when you're using it, Lord, to grow us and to challenge us, but also, Lord, that third piece, to recognize when the enemy is trying to steal, kill, and destroy. So Lord, whether it's distortions, distractions, discouragement, deception, division. Help us, Lord, to be to play fast, that we'll recognize it sooner so we can respond sooner. Lord, would you bless this flock? Would you help them to become really good at this, not only for their lives and their families, 
but on behalf of the community they live in. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.